while you're going through life and trying to make sure you fix all the little pieces of your life, understand this, that there is over and in, above and below your life, a divine architect ordering every detail. And if you belong to him and are in the covenant of his love, he is accomplishing his perfect will. And you can rest in that. You can rest in that. The Lord is still on the throne. These are challenging times, challenging days to live in. You can become pretty distressed about the way things are going. The way things are going in the world is chaotic. Disconcerting, troubling, disturbing, distressing, in some ways frightening. Not so in the kingdom. The divine architect is ordering our lives, those of us who belong to him and are in covenant love with him, he is ordering our lives to his eternal glory. Every part. How wonderful to live in that confidence. Amen? We're going to be talking a whole lot about the divine architect today. We're finishing up the story of Jonah. We've spent seven weeks looking at four chapters. We've learned that God is relentless. He's relentless in dealing with sin. And he's relentless with extending his grace and his mercy and his love. Because God, for some reason, desires a relationship with us. Sin, well, that destroys it. We're never able to live all that God wanted us to experience. He wants this relationship. And we thrive when we walk with God. We know that God loves the world and wants the best for each one of us. But Jonah, Jonah the prophet, Jonah the man of God, Jonah, who's had direct revelation with or from God, the Almighty. He's struggling with God. He's a reluctant messenger who has had snippets of selfishness and rage. This story has captured me. And I think from the feedback, it's captured us. And it really gets interesting in chapter 4, which we're going to hit today. If you're with us last week or you heard the podcast, you were probably shocked at what happened in the first four verses of chapter 4. A large city repents. No one's ever heard of that. Turns to God. Recognize how evil it is. And that the life-giving Yahweh has offered them forgiveness. <laughs> they all respond from the king all the way down. And you would think that if you're a preacher, that God, or, or if you were a preacher, that you would be so excited. It would go on your resume. <laughs> I preached and uh, over 120,000 people, they got saved. 
But this preacher's pouting. We left Jonah angry, sitting outside of Nineveh, not grasped by God's grace. God had already used a storm and a fish to teach Jonah. In today's text, he uses the sun, a plant, a worm, and the wind to teach Jonah some valuable lesson. But before we dig in, let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, our good, good Father, you are a God of compassion and mercy. You are slow to get angry and you are filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Your ways are perfect and your actions are just. This is a season of thanksgiving. I suppose we always and ought to be thankful, but But these are the times that we just reflect just a little bit of the blessings that you've given us. So we thank you that you are a God of compassion and mercy. That you, God, are slow to get angry and you are filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Because if you were not, we would be consumed. We also thank you for your blessings. Some of us have had to search for them during this chaotic time. But as we're going to see today, God, that your grace comes in different packages. Specifically, a a plant, a worm, and some wind. So we ask you, Father, today to speak to us. Use your servant. Unleash your spirit. We need to hear from our Father. Would you convict and encourage your church, both the church that's meeting all over the world right now and the church right in our neighborhoods? We pray for our flock, those in the house and those online. We especially want to just say thank you, Father, for preserving Tom Weir's life. We thank you, dear God, that he's at home and he's recovering and and that you graced him and Cindy. We also want to thank you for Dave and Linda Shedlow who are celebrating today 40 years of marriage. This is amazing, God, the way that you continually are involved in each one of our lives. Ignite us. Send us out to proclaim your grace and your love and your mercy. We love you. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's try to unwrap the text. Listen to our teacher, the Holy Spirit, and respond today to God's life-giving words. I've reminded you often over these last seven weeks that Jonah to most of us is just this kid's Sunday school story. But it's not. It's way bigger. And there are so many important truths that will affect us and even our church. So let's read Jonah chapter 4. You can turn your Bibles there, your flat screens, or if you choose, you can read it on the screen behind me. But I'm going to start reading 
chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. <laughs> the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. We'll stop there for now. As you know, Jonah went outside the city. He builds a shelter, a temporary shelter, and waits. I'm not sure how Jonah got the message of chapter 3, verse 10. But if you even look back in your Bibles right there, God saw how Nineveh repented. And he relented. He changed his mind. And he decided to grace them because of their repentance. Now, realistically, did Jonah get that message? I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. I told you I was going to destroy Nineveh, but I'm not going to do that. Did he get it directly? Or after 40 days, as he goes out and realizes that God is not going to send the fire and the brimstone. Well, at this moment, however he got the news, he wanted to make sure that God knew of his disapproval. He did not agree with God on his ways or his methods. and <laughs> He was going to let God know. But maybe, maybe, if I go sit out there and God really knows how angry I am, maybe he'll change his mind again. So I will have a front row seat when he zaps the evil Ninevites. <laughs> well, the Lord, in his grace, arranged for a leafy plant to grow and provide shade for Jonah. No doubt it was a miracle. No matter how fast plants grow or how big their leaves, God designed this one perfectly right at the right spot, and it grew up and provided Jonah shade. Jonah was grateful. In fact, if you would read in the original Hebrew, it is something that, that sticks out. It's like a billboard. He says he just overjoyed. He was so joyful. He did, if I were going to translate this, a happy dance. Because it eased his discomfort. This really shouts to all of us, this plant is really, really important to Jonah because he hasn't really been happy about a lot of stuff. The plant was miraculous. So maybe in his 
deceived mind. He started thinking this. Well, maybe God is relenting. Maybe God's not going to do this. Maybe God's kind of apologizing to me. And he knows he's wrong, so maybe that's why he sent the plant. Now, we all hear that and say, hey, we start to cringe. Are you saying, how could a man of God think like this or, or perhaps think like this? Maybe the truth is, is that God needed to teach Jonah a lesson. And this was part of the lesson. Then we read that God also arranged for a worm who ate through the stem and therefore killed the plant and it withered. Further on, we read, as the sun grew hot, God also arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. Can you imagine what Jonah's thinking about right now? He's out there hoping for this city to get destroyed, hating the people there, even though he preached to them. And what does God do? Doesn't destroy. But then, then he gets his plant, and, and he's so grateful, he's so overjoyed. And what does God do? Send a worm and the wind. It's interesting to see that our sovereign God, not only a few chapters before, sent a storm and a fish. Now, he grew a leafy plant. He sent a little tiny worm. And he sent a wind. God was working in all of them. And we love the plant, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but he was even working in the worm and the wind. God graciously ar arranged a plant. It was a blessing and it brought joy and comfort. And I think even just a very quick question. What is your plant? God does send things to you that bless you and encourage you. And we get overjoyed. But then God graciously arranged a worm. And a worm brings sorrow and loss and disappointment. And I think there's times in every one of our lives we ask that question, God, what's the worm? What is it that's in my life that I'm sad? I'm so disappointed. And lastly, God graciously, as we're going to see, arranged a harsh wind. It brought affliction and pain and distress. And there are times in every one of our lives where we're going, God, what is going on? What's with the wind? I seem to be down in my luck already. Things aren't going well. Why? Now, we have some huge salvation lessons here because God is way more concerned about us than we'll ever know and God desires deeply to save us remember that God sent a fish a very uncomfortable thing but literally save his life yes he spent three days in the belly of the fish but he did that to save Jonah's life it's a picture of salvation to me 
of justification of the act that God died on the cross and provided, well, and became our Savior. He paid the debt for our sin. He saved us. It's a time when every one of us realized, Lord, I need a Savior. I will never be able to connect with you because I have sin in my life. And Jesus paid that debt. And it's called justification. And what's really cool about that is it's an event. It's a one-time thing. And once you come to Christ and receive him as Savior, once you're grasped by his grace, the scriptures say that you're a son or a daughter of God. But God's not done with us. Because, well, sin continually plagues us. And God desires the best for each one of us. So God saves Jonah's life through gifts and trials. And we would call this his sanctification. We continually have this in our lives. We don't often see how God uses fish or a plant or worms or the wind in the sanctification process. But we understand that God's greatest desire is to chip away anything in our lives well, that don't and doesn't bring him glory. So then when we walk out of our house in the morning, we mirror Jesus to other folks. And sometimes there's attitudes and sometimes there's actions that don't bring him glory. And he needs us weenus of them. In Jonah's case, it certainly was selfishness. But we recognize that oftentimes we respond to the sanctifying process of God the same way Jonah responds. We get angry. We don't like discomfort. And we lash out at God. But, but God controls all and works all things out. If you remember in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in Rome. And he starts off in chapter 8 just talking how abundant life is living in the Spirit or walking with God. He finally gets near the end of the chapter in verse 28 and he writes this. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why? Verse 29. For God knew his people in advance. And he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. For God chose us to become like Jesus. And that's how he uses all things in our lives. Things that we perceive as good or things that we perceive are bad in order to chip away. In order that we would depend on God differently. In order that we would mirror to others our God. 
Now, a God who is sovereign bothers some of us. But the providence of God is a tenet of our faith. It's just hard to grasp. Over, well, the past few years, we've gone over some catechisms from the pulpit in our worship. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, a tool that is used especially for children to be able to help all of them understand what's important. It's a systematic theology. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 27 is this. What is the providence of God? And the answer you'll see up on the screen. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power. Whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Ultimately. God used a worm and wind to save Jonah from a plant-centered life. And we're going to talk more about this the rest of this morning. This is a perfect definition of sanctification. Because we all have the bent for comfort. We all have the bent for, well, living a life that pleases only us. God says that's not going to bring you pleasure. It, it just isn't. I didn't make you that way. A loving father controlling everything, giving and taking away with perfect wisdom and timing so that we look more like Jesus and the kingdom advances. It's great for those that say, that's what I want. But I really have a bent toward a nice, big, fat, green, leafy plant that brings me comfort. You see, sometimes we have a tendency to focus on the gifts, not the giver. And focusing on gifts and not the giver is idolatry. Now, last week, we saw how Jonah responded in the first four verses. And I used the prophet Habakkuk to go back and just be able to say, hey, Habakkuk had a lot of the same questions, but he responded really differently. Well, in the same way, I think we can look at another Old Testament hero. His name is Job. And Job responded, again, way differently than the prophet Jonah. Job, we're told in Job chapter 1 in the Old Testament, that he was a godly man. But in just a matter of verses, his vine, his plant... His gourd, however we translate it, was taken away. You, you can't even imagine. The man was wealthy beyond imagination. He had a large family and many shelters and large flocks. And all of those were taken away. In catastrophic events. And you know what Job's response was? The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. God, I know you're in charge. I don't understand it. And then he ends up with this. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm still going to worship you, God. I, I don't get it. I don't get why all this has happened. But I'm going to trust you because you are my good, good Father. Now let's continue to read verse 9 of chapter 4 in Jonah. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant. Though you did nothing to put it there, it came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. And let me just quickly comment here. This is a really hard passage to interpret, to try to figure out what the Hebrew is saying here. And I think actually this text says it one of the best ways. And that is there's 120 people that really are so clueless about who God is. At least that amount. Now, it could be bigger. Living in spirits of darkness, not to mention all the animals. And here is a riveting question. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? We're going to come back to this question again and again. Because what God was saying to Jonah is, shouldn't I, and again, literally, shed tears? Shouldn't I weep? Shouldn't I cry over all these people that don't know God? Their lives are without hope. They have no direction. Violence and sin has filled the city. Shouldn't I, God says, cry that they don't have a life abundant or eternal? The first question, though, that God asked Jonah is, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And Jonah says, absolutely. It was there. It was for my comfort. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. And what do you do, God? <laughs> Kill it. God knew his answer, and God knew his heart. So we know that God was gracious here and had to teach Jonah learn about some of his priorities. Now again, although each one of us may uh, understand this and it might be so clear, I'm just going to say it. God is concerned about a city, and Jonah is concerned about his comfort. Shouldn't God cry over such a great city? Jonah, you are showing grief, extreme grief, over a plant, which actually I understand. But shouldn't you feel sorry or shouldn't you shed tears for such a city that doesn't know me? 
Or maybe, why don't you care about the lost? With the same passion, you grieve about your comfort. Now, I've got to be honest. At this point in my study, I stopped. Because sometimes we have a tendency to judge Jonah. But what I've been noticing is I've been seeing a lot of me in Jonah. So I, I asked God, would, would you, God, be having the same conversation with me? Is there anything that I am more concerned about in my life than the concern for people and their destiny? And I stopped there. And the troubling thing for me is that there wasn't just one answer. I started thinking about quite a few things that I paid attention to and I was more concerned about than folks that were living without hope and no guarantee of life for the future. One thing hit me really hard. Many of you know that we've moved. And as you move into a house, there are certain things that you just want to take care of and, and fix up or, or put your brand on it, whatever way you'd like to say it. But I was thinking the other day, as I was driving in and out, having my garage open, uh, changing out the different things that needed to be changed, how many times my neighbors might have been outside. But I was so busy. <laughs> I only have an hour. I only have an hour and a half. I, I got to get this done. How many opportunities did I miss in the summer when everybody is out for me just to greet and get to know my neighbors better? So one, one thing for me was the house. It wasn't evil. It wasn't wrong. Was I more concerned with God? You see, God is talking to me about a plant-centered life. My own comfort and my own goals and my own me. And I or we may not be as verbally courageous to God. I didn't tell God I was angry. I didn't. But my calendar and my checkbook points to me what matters. Actually, as I've been in this study, I've noticed that our culture is telling me that a plant-centered life is okay. It's okay just to be concerned about yourself and make sure you're being taken care of and your future looks good. It was interesting. Last week, Advocate Aurora's Vice President of Mission and Spiritual Care. doesn't really matter. It's one of these newsletters that end up in my emails. And the man whose name was Reverend Massey uh, was responding to 
the chaos of our culture right now. And he said this, it's okay to indulge in a little bit of in-service, of caring for the social, emotional, physical, and spiritual parts of your body. Okay. Right now, he says, every one of us, let's pamper ourselves, he said. Whatever that little thing is for you that you like to do to make yourself feel a little bit better, now is the time to do it. Because in doing so, we are kind of nurturing those human beings, bolstering our res resiliency, and helping ourselves bounce back when we're brought low by these challenging days that we are going through. Now maybe you don't see anything wrong with that advice. And some of it's probably good. But you know what I heard is, you know what? Times are tough. Things are chaotic. Make sure you take care of yourself. Pamper yourself. Make sure that things are good for you. Jesus talked about how the kingdom values are different than our cultures. The culture says, focus on your comfort first. You deserve a break today. Make sure that you get what you want. Jesus says, focus on what benefits the kingdom first. He said this actually in Matthew chapter 6, and he was talking in the context of money. He's saying, don't worry about where your clothes and where your food and all that's going to come from. He goes, in the kingdom, the king's going to take care of you. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. Make that your priority. So I asked the hard question again. This was called the week of questions. What in my life or in the life of our church reveals we are living plant-based lives? Focusing on our comfort, making sure ours, that we are being taken care of. One thing came up was we don't want to learn from God and want Him to change us. In other words, some of us are so comfortable that we literally don't pick up God's word and don't ask what needs to be changed because we like living our lives in charge. When we forget that the king of kings says, I've written this so that you might understand life. So sometimes we show our selfishness by not picking up the book and allowing God to change us from the inside out. Sometimes I find out if we're focusing on plant-centered lives that we talk more about our rights rather than advancing the kingdom. Or we get upset when we're inconvenienced or asked to sacrifice. <laughs> Why would I come out on another night? Why would I give that kind of money? Why, why? I mean, I deserve these things. I work all day long. I'm tired. Why would I work with kids? Why would I? And you just fill in the blanks. Because our plant-centered life is ruling us. 
Sometimes when we are living plant-centered lives, we get angry because we don't get our way in life or even in ministry. We want our team to win more than God's team. We focus more inside the walls of our homes and church rather than outside the walls of those who are desperate and hurting and discouraged. When will we realize that life or ministry or the church does not revolve around us? It's not about us. You know, the ending of Job, Job, oh boy. The ending of Jonah is stark. If you've been reading it, and many of you have, and you've even recently read it, you end with this. And you're like, this is it? (laughs) Like, maybe we lost some manuscripts. What is going on here? Like, is this really how this story ends? And I think, uh, as you know, uh, yeah, this is how the story ends. And I think the book ends like this to make a point for all of us. It's not about Jonah. We'd love to hear how we responded. I think God personally is pointing his finger at us. Because I think, again, sharing God's heart means I will care more for a city than the plant or me. You see, God has a heart of compassion. He cries over the loss, and I need to personally develop a heart that better reflects God's heart. And I'm not saying that every single day you are weeping because you know that a coworker or a family member or, and you put it, fill in the blank, doesn't know Jesus. But all I'm saying is this. Are we so far from the heart of God that we have never, ever, ever wept over someone's lost condition? That us and our priorities are so important that we might not even share the hope that we have in our own heart for these folks. Do you remember at the end of Christ's ministry um, that he cried over Jerusalem? Jesus isn't, well, we don't have him crying a lot in the scriptures. We don't have everything, but, but he weeps over Jerusalem as he looks over and says, I came, I was your Messiah. I wanted to bring you peace. All of you are lost. You're going nowhere. Why didn't you receive the Messiah? Oh, he cared. We know that God wants everyone to be saved. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul's writing to Timothy and just boldly says, God wants everyone to have a relationship. God wants all to come into an experienced life. Now what I do know from this story is that God is sovereign. And in his providence, he has given me opportunities to influence people around me. 
I am a tool in the master's hands. There are divine appointments all around me. And he starts saying, what's one way that I can grow in compassion? God, how come my heart doesn't break as quickly as yours? Is it really that I am so selfish? And maybe the answer is yes. But what I came to understand is that understanding the not yet redeemed will give me more empathy for them. I have to remember, by nature, the Bible says those without Jesus, those who have not been redeemed yet, have, have not accepted God's free gift of salvation. The scriptures call them blind. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the scriptures say that these folks are unable to see the glorious light of the good news because they've been blinded. Secondly, Folks without Jesus are slaves to sin or are bound. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that anyone, anyone who is without a relationship with me is a slave to sin. And that we are dead. Folks without Jesus are dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. And if, again, understanding that as I talk with people, that they're blind and they're bound and they're dead, it is only going to be by God's amazing grace that opens their eyes to all of this. It is not my job to save them. It is my job to help them understand who my wonderful and gracious and good Father is that desires a relationship with them. God is the one that draws them. And we are the one that share, just like Jonah, to Nineveh. And I think if we understand, we'll be more empathetic. You know, I've been saved a long time, and, and this is about my 44th year as a pastor. And there are times that I get just too concerned about the church or about busyness or about busy work or whatever. And one of the things I've noticed is that when my heart for the loss begins to wane, that there's something wrong in my soul because that's not who God is. So what I do, one of the things is not only get into the scriptures and not only pray and ask God to change my heart, but I read a guy, an author whose name is George Vermer. I don't know how many of you guys know George Vermer. He's in his 80s right now, and he was the first president and founder of Operation Mobilization. But I think one of George Vermer's Goal in life is to make sure that the church doesn't forget the lost people outside their walls. It's so convicting. Just recently he wrote that he's praying for 200,000 missionaries to go to unreached groups in our world. 
And he said it's only going to happen if we develop the greater disciplines of study and prayer. It's only as we spend time with God, it's only as we hear God's heart that we're going to have a passion for that. And again, I started thinking, not only of the unreached people groups, but the unreached folks right here, right around my house. And I just started asking harder questions like, when's the last time someone came to faith in our midst? Again, you can't make that happen, but you're going to hear about a baptism service that, that we're going to plan for in January. But would it be wrong to pray for 10 or 12 or 15 people? Or 100? I, I don't know. Of people that we have contact with and might come to faith and that we could hear their stories of God's grace once they were dead and now they're alive. I also started thinking of this. I grew up in a church. In fact, we can hear from Dr. John Matson. He grew up in a church. He's a missionary, and we're going to chat with him in a moment. But they talked about the privilege of being missionaries. When I talk with people, most of the time, young ones that go into school, I'm going to be an accountant, and I'm going to be a teacher, and I'm going to be a carpenter. And I get that. But I just don't hear a whole lot of, you know what, I want to be a missionary. I know there's one sitting right here in this congregation that wants that bottom of her heart. But how come we as a church are not sending? I remember one of the things my dad drilled in my head in my home church, his rink. We want to be a sending church. We want to send more people out than keep them here. Have I forgotten that? Did, did God's mind change? Is Nineveh important? Jehovah was not concerned about the Ninevites. In fact, we know he hated them. He didn't like them. They weren't like him. And we don't know how Jonah responded after God's last question. We don't know Jonah's answer. But I do believe this, and this is just me talking. I do believe Jonah must have responded in a positive way because the way Jesus talked about him in Matthew 12 and, and Luke 11. He was a hero. Maybe even, in my mind, after God said this to him, he went back into Nineveh. Who knew better than to teach 120,000 people about Yahweh? Maybe he did. Maybe that's where he spent the rest of his life. 
encouraging people he hated days before. You know, this whole book is rocky. This whole book has been about sin and not because God wants to slap us on the wrist, but he goes, you're missing out. I want you to repent. Listen to me. Life happens when you walk with me. And it's about God's love and mercy and grace. To us as redeemed and to those who are unredeemed. Jonah addresses the Jonas. Saints who know God and know better, but are comfortable and desire plant-filled lives or plant-centered lives rather than kingdom-centered lives. We know that disobedience and sin hurts you and others. We know that pouting doesn't work with God because God is all-knowing and all-wise. We know there'll be times we disagree with God, the way he runs the world. But can we trust our God who is knowing and powerful and all-wise? We know that our comfort and what benefits us as individuals and a church can't be the priority. Because Jesus said over and over again that living begins when we give up our lives. Jonah helps us understand a God but the part that gripped me is that God cries weeps for the blind and the dead and I want that. I want that. And I think God wants that for a church. I'm praying that this book shook us up. That we've been convicted. That we've been encouraged. That you see some blind spots. And that you recognize that you could be Jonah. And God is relentless. He's relentless. In both dealing with sin. And giving out grace. After prayer, we're going to respond by singing all I once held dear. It's an older song. It's a powerful song. But I'm going to end our service today like I've never ended a ministry or service. Normally I would pray, or normally someone else would pray, and in this case, someone else is going to pray. His name is Pastor Alistair Begg. And as I heard him pray, 
at the end of one of his messages about Jonah. I listened again, and I listened again, and I listened again. And I said, God, this is how I think you want us to end our series. So would you bow your heads with me as Alistair Begg prays to close our time? Father, I look at Jonah running away and I see myself. I think many of us would be prepared to admit that. Running away from the opportunities of tomorrow in the routine of our lives back in the Nineveh to which you've sent us. Looking for boats, planes, trains, anything that will get us off to some place where we don't have to do that to which you've called us. We're tempted to sidestep the sleeping prophet underneath the deck, but it looks a lot like he's a picture of the church, asleep while the world rants and raves and wonders how it's going to stop itself from capsizing. The church asleep, awakened by the world. How can you sleep at a time like this? Don't you have a role to play? And then with embarrassment and shame, he's cast over the side. We can certainly identify with him as he screams out from the fish, as he endeavors to make amends and to renew his commitment. We walk with him back into the city as he does now what he's been asked to do, and yet we're staggered to realize that although he goes the right place and says the right thing, his heart is really not in it. And again, we see our faces attending services, preaching sermons, giving the right cliched answers, and all a thin veneer for a heart that is increasingly distanced from your heart of compassion, Lord Jesus Christ. Hearts that have failed to look at the lonely people and to say, where do they all come from? Hearts that have grown cold. Minds that have retreated into our theological shibboleths, using our theology as a means of retreat from ever getting our hands dirty, from ever putting ourselves in the place of vulnerability. We're asking people to come to us and forgetting that it was Jesus who said, come to me. And he said that we should go to them. But we thank you that you are a God of compassion, that you don't cast off your servants, that you provide the plants to make us comfortable and happy. You provide the worms so that we wouldn't depend on your secondary benefits, but in order that we might be cast afresh upon you. Forgive us, Lord, to the extent that we have set up little idols of our own, things that really prevent us from going all out for you, whatever all out would mean. But whatever it means, pray that we might be able to say from our hearts tonight that knowing you, Jesus, is the, really, frankly, the greatest thing, and we would love for others to come to know you as well. So receive our offerings and receive our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.